Yeah, so we're in the middle of a uh, five-week series on faith. Um, last week we had Ed Underwood come up and talk to us uh, about faith as trust, uh, and he was mainly talking about how the role that faith has in the life of the, of the Christian, the, the person who's already a believer. Likewise, the week before, when Ken talked about faith as dependence, uh, he was really focusing on the same thing, the idea that, that we as believers, as already Christians, uh, what is the role of faith in our lives? And, and I'm going to, by the end of this time together, I'm going to come to the same sort of definition as, as they had, but my focus is a little different, and that is uh, I want us to, to think about, wrestle with, come to an understanding of how we should view this idea of faith when we're talking to those who are not believers, okay? How, how we talk to our friends and neighbors and loved ones who don't already know the Lord uh, and, and how we cash this thing of faith out. Because what we'll see is that it's mostly misrepresented and mischaracterized in our culture. Um, let me just briefly talk about two ways we popularly use the word faith. And the first one is when, we, when what we really mean is worldview. Okay? We talk about the Muslim faith or the Christian faith. But what we really mean is that an all-encompassing way of seeing reality, okay? Now, again, this is a mischaracterization. Why don't we call it a worldview? Um, we don't talk about uh, a naturalist's faith. We, we talk about a naturalistic worldview, okay? So, so when we talk about Christianity or another religion that way, it's really an attempt to illegitimize that worldview out of the gate. By, by, a, by making it sound like it, it requires some blind understanding that's different from a, a rational or an evidential understanding as, as like that of the naturalist, okay? So I don't use faith that way. And, and, and the reason there's an attempt to illegitimize Christianity that way is because it turns out that when we actually compare a naturalistic worldview with that of a Christian worldview, we find that the Christian worldview does a whole lot better on, on things like being coherent throughout and, and having explanatory power and scope and all the other things that you would want from your worldview. So rather than, than open naturalism or science or whatever other worldview you have to that sort of comparison, it's, it's easier to just illegitimize Christianity as being a, a sort of blind faith uh, and talk about it that way. But, but the more popular way in which we use the word faith in our culture today is a, as a way of coming to a set of beliefs or understanding. And there, of course, the, the false representation is that uh, people who are naturalists or scientists have evidence and reason on their side, whereas people who have religion, and Christians in particular, they just have faith. It's a blind sort of thing. Um, so, so that's where I want to talk. I, I want to get to an understanding today of why I, 
when I'm talking to unbelievers, don't even use the word faith because it's been, become so misrepresented and mischaracterized. We'll see that that's not the way Christians have understood the word faith, the biblical word faith, uh, throughout church history. So in her uh, very insightful and important uh, fairly recent book, Saving Leonardo, uh, the Christian thinker Nancy Piercy begins by uh, characterizing the uh, core of the secularism of our culture as being that of a <clears throat> excuse me, fact-value distinction or a fact-faith distinction. And she begins by explaining why, that, that this is why most of us today in America hate politics. Okay? That is that uh, it used to be that the goal of politics, of legislation and of, and of politics generally, was to find the common good for all people, for all citizens, okay? But not all that long ago, there was a change that took place which said that, you know, there are those things which we can be certain of that have their, their root in science and facts and evidence, and then there are those other things, like religion, that don't. And morality, good, was relegated to that other region, and politics was deemed to be something that ought to be based more on, on science and, and fact. Okay? So there was a, a distinction made between fact and value, and you can see that that was a huge change for politics. In other words, where we are today is with the belief that people make up their own individual idea of what's good and right and moral. And if that's the case, then politics devolves to just uh, a power grab. Whoever's in, in power is going to suit themselves rather than the common good. Okay, you see that? Now, we can trace this idea, this false distinction. And, and of course, Nancy Piercy's whole goal is to, to show that it is a false distinction. But we can trace it back uh, a little ways. Francis Schaeffer, the, the powerful apologist of the last century, uh, characterized this in terms of a two-story house. He said, modern man lives in a two-story house where he believes that, that facts and evidence and reason come from science and lives in the lower story, but that those things don't provide him with the meaning and purpose that used to come from a more holistic understanding of the world. And so modern man makes up meaning and purpose to life, makes a, makes a leap to the upper story, in Francis Schaeffer's words, that his worldview doesn't justify, that he has no logical basis to make. But we can, we can trace this false distinction back even further and, and land on the influential German thinker Immanuel Kant of, of the 18th century, 19th century, who basically was the first to make this claim that science provides us with good reason for believing things in all other realms, like art and uh, even history, and certainly morality and religion, 
don't offer us that same sort of, uh, of certainty. They're, they're different. We, we arrive at truth and knowledge through science, and that other stuff is, is less so. Okay? Now, it's important to understand that, that we as the church are largely influenced by the way our culture thinks. And so there are Christians today who are perfectly okay with accepting this false distinction and, and who even find a, a basis for it in Scripture by, by misunderstanding the, the relevant Scripture. So if you look at uh, the end of uh, the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, we have the story of uh, Jesus' encounter with his disciple Thomas, the doubting Thomas. So Jesus has risen from the grave, has appeared to many of the disciples, but Thomas was not among them at that time. And so Thomas faith, uh, famously said to the other disciples, unless I see the, marks, the, see the scar on his side and feel the nail prints in his hand, I won't believe. So he was way back then, 2,000 years ago, um, articulating what would be known as the, the view of empiricism. I only believe what I see or, or feel or comes through me, to me through my senses. Eventually, though, he did encounter Jesus, and Jesus offered to, to let him feel the marks in his hand, and, and Thomas at that point said, no, I see, I believe. And Jesus' words in, in verse 29, I believe it is, uh, were, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And so Christians living in this culture with this false distinction say, oh, there's, there's something better or more spiritual about a faith that doesn't have evidence and reason backing it up that in fact is, is somewhat blind. And so, so this is a way of... And, and, by the end of my talk, I'll, I'll hope to show you why this is a misunderstanding of this verse. But you, you've heard that in, in our churches, right? That, that somehow faith that is blind and apart from evidence and reason is, is somehow more spiritual. I get it all the time. I spend a lot of my time showing people how the, the latest and most important discoveries from modern science powerfully support provide evidence for what the Bible has claimed all along. And, and it's not uncommon for somebody to come up to me afterwards and say, you give me all this evidence and reason to believe, where's the room for my faith? As though faith is somehow this, this blind sort of thing. Okay? So that's what we're talking about today. And, and I want to get real basic with you and, and define some terms that we use all the time. Um, and, and when I get real basic, it's not really for the benefit of, of you sitting here because I know you're on top of this stuff. This is in case somebody comes across this sermon on the Internet or something. Um, it's for their sake that I get this basic, okay? So, so how about the word truth? We, we use it all the time. It's, it's one of Antioch's core commitments. We're committed to truth. What do we mean by truth? And the answer is that truth is when things are as we take them to be. When things are as we take them to be. So on the one hand, we have a belief or an understanding, an idea, a, 
a claim, a propositional statement. And on the other hand, we have reality. And truth is when those two things match. So truth refers to the matching relationship between our thoughts and reality. This is called the correspondence view of truth. And while there have been philosophers who have disagreed about this, this, this is the consensus view. The truth is the matching relationship or when, when our beliefs correspond to reality. This is also referred to as an objective view of truth. That is, it's the object, reality, that determines whether a belief is true or not. Okay? And you'll see that a little better when we talk about a, a different view uh, that's, that's held in our culture today. So if that's what we mean by truth, if reality is, is the determiner or the arbiter of truth, what do we mean by the word knowledge? Okay? Again, we use it all the time, but, but we often don't stop to define it. Knowledge, the consensus is, among those who do take the time to think about it, knowledge is properly justified true belief. Okay? So to count as knowledge, something first of all has to match reality, that is, be true. But it also has to be properly justified. You have to have good reason or evidence for thinking it's true. All right? Uh, something can be true. You can believe it correctly, but you might not have good reason to do so. That could be, in, in most cases, we would call that a lucky guess or, or an intuition or something like that. But it wouldn't be true knowledge because you didn't have good justification for believing it, okay? You can also have pretty good justification for believing something, but it turn out not to be true. In, in both of those different scenarios, we don't call that knowledge, okay? So that's all I'm going to say about that except to say that uh, what it really comes down to, the battle in our day, is what counts as truth and what counts as proper justification for knowledge, okay? So I want to take you kind of quickly through three very popular views in our day and culture about this that are dead wrong, okay? And each one is an attempt to artificially narrow what counts as proper justification for knowledge to uh, disqualify another view without even having to consider it. Okay? And the first one is uh, what I'll call scientism. Scientism is the view, really, that, that originates again with Immanuel Kant that says what the only reliable source of knowledge is that which has been gained through science, through scientific experimentation and such. Okay? It has both a, a hard and a soft version, but, but are you kind of familiar with that claim in our culture? It, it relegates religion and morality and all these other things to the sidelines. It says science is the purveyor of truth. Science is the only reliable way of knowing things. Okay? Now, this doesn't stand up to even a, a minute's scrutiny, and, and I, I don't have time to take you through it, but I would challenge you to think this week as you as you go through your life, think about the things that you take to be knowledge on your part 
and ask yourself, how do I justify that knowledge? And you'll find that knowledge is justified, properly justified, by a whole slew of different venues. Um, you, you know your spouse's favorite ice cream from experience. You may know your best friend's uh, favorite whatever, because when he told you it, you gave him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you know how to show up at Antioch Church on a Sunday morning, and it's not because any scientist has done experimentation to prove it to you, okay? So really, the bottom line is that the, the, the things that should count as proper justification for knowledge are all over the place, okay? Um, my children know where their grandfather grew up as a boy, not because they experienced that, but because he has had opportunity to tell them that, okay? There's, there's just all sorts of different ways of knowing things, and that in itself refutes this claim called scientism. More importantly, though, you need to realize that this claim is self-refuting. That is, when applied to the claim itself, this statement fails. That is, there is no scientific experiment or set of scientific experiments which lead to the conclusion that science is the only reliable source of knowledge. You with me on that? Okay, it disqualifies itself. It cuts off the branch on which it's sitting. By the way, my goal this morning would have been to prowl all over the stage to make it hard on Kyle and Nathan, whom you met earlier, who were on the cameras back there. But I, I, I spent three and a half continuous hours last night playing water polo with my daughter in, in a once-a-year event, and everybody else in the pool was high school kids. So the more likely scenario than my prowling across the stage is that I won't be able to keep my seat on the stool here this morning. Okay? So you need to be able to recognize a claim when it disqualifies itself. And scientism is just that. This whole secular dichotomy that, that is ingrained in our culture has its roots in a, a claim, scientism, which has been self-refuting from, from the get-go. And when you find a, a, a statement that is logically self-refuting or self-referentially absurd, it's necessarily false. There's no amount of further testing or evidence that'll come in and make it different. You just need to spit it out and get rid of it. Scientism is a popular view in our culture. It rules the media, and yet it's necessarily false. Okay? The second very popular claim in this arena in our culture today is what we call postmodernism. And specifically, I'm looking at the, the epistemological claims of postmodernism, that is, the claims about truth and knowledge. And basically, postmodernism's claims about truth and knowledge are subjective, not objective. What that means is that it's not reality that determines truth, but it's the believer. Okay? Um, really, the, the simplest form of cashing this out in postmodernism is that there is no truth. And I hope you see right away that that likewise is self-refuting. It's a truth claim of its own, and it claims that there is no such thing. So, so if somebody tells you there's no such thing as truth, just ask them, is that true? 
Okay? Now, it's usually not that cast out that simply because that's so obviously self-refuting. So you get a lot more words in the claim like, if there is objective truth out there, we're prevented from discovering it by the vagaries of our language and the context of our culture. In that case, the question is, well, how did you get outside the vagaries of your language and the context of your culture to discover that objective truth that you just foisted on me? Okay? So, so all the way down, those sorts of claims from postmodernism about narrowing what counts as truth and knowledge or, or trying to do away with truth altogether are likewise self-refuting. And people can talk that way, but they can't really live that way. In other words, the, even the postmodernist needs to know whether there really is a train coming uh, before they cross the tracks. The reality is the train, regardless of whether the believer is late to work and wishes it weren't so. Okay? Let, me, let me give you one illustration that really will give you the difference between objective and subjective uh, truth. And this comes from a movie. I, I read far more books than I go to movies, but Antioch started six years ago this month in a movie theater, and so we like to use movie illustrations. So in the movie Ratatouille, when we first meet Linguini, the, the human protagonist of the movie, uh, the little chef who's the bad guy, uh, tells him that he's sorry that Linguini's mother has died. And Linguini's response is, oh, don't be sorry. She believed in heaven, so she's covered afterlife-wise. Okay? To me, that's a very clear statement of a subjective view of truth. If there really is a heaven, if heaven is reality, then my disbelieving in it cannot change that. Right? Reality, the object, is the truth maker. If there really isn't a heaven, then all my belief in heaven doesn't change that fact either. Okay? So Linguini is, is just giving me a very classic example of a subjective view of truth, which is nonsensical, self-refuting, and, and yet commonplace in our society. Uh, there, there is an aspect of saving Christian faith, as we'll see again, that depends upon our belief, but the ultimate arbiter of, of whether or not we are saved and go to heaven is whether that's reality in the first place. Okay. Um, so let me move on to one more popular view, at least within the church, that seeks to artificially narrow what counts as knowledge, and that's what I'll call biblicism. Biblicism is the claim that only what we learn from the Bible counts as reliable knowledge. Okay? Um, the reason this is raised is usually to insulate a wrong interpretation of Scripture from evidence and reason that can be brought to bear against it. Okay? Kind of especially like in the age of the earth debate within the church, an intramural debate. If, if science doesn't count, if the evidence from creation itself doesn't count, then my particular interpretation of Genesis is much more insulated from, um, from being defeated. Okay? Um, 
Again, this is a view, like, like all these views that seek to artificially narrow the playing field, this view is self-refuting. That is, the Bible itself does not tell us that it's the only reliable source of knowledge. In fact, we, when we read the Bible, we see that it over and over again appeals to knowledge gained outside of it. Psalm 19 tells us to look at the heavens because they declare the power and the glory of God. Jesus himself tells us to look at the ants and the flowers and, and on and on and on. But more than that, the Bible assumes whole sets of knowledge that we bring to it before we can even understand it. The Bible doesn't teach us grammar or vocabulary. It assumes we know that. It doesn't teach us the laws of logic. We have to bring that to it, and we gain that knowledge outside of the Bible. Okay? So I hope you see pretty clearly that it, too, is a false view of, of truth and knowledge. Okay? So with that, I want to tell you what the biblical pattern about truth and knowledge and faith is. And that is that over and over again, as we read historical accounts in Scripture, the pattern comes out that it's evidence that leads to knowledge that leads to trust in, in the one true God. Okay? That's the pattern that we read throughout Scripture. Um, as just one example, and, and this comes from the end of the, the long, chap, many chapters account of Moses and Pharaoh. So God repeatedly does supernatural works that are, uh, that are meant to show Pharaoh who's in control. And in uh, Exodus 14, 31, kind of a summary statement that's been there in, in previous chapters, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So there was evidence that led to their knowledge that led them to trust. That's the biblical pattern. Um, if, if we go to Joshua 4, where the, the people have just crossed into the promised land by crossing the river Jordan. The priests carried the ark into the middle of the river, and it dried up, as the Red Sea had earlier. And they crossed on dry land the, the river Jordan, which is not like the Columbia. It, it, it's more like the Deschutes, if you've ever been to, to the Holy Land. It's a small river, but they crossed on dry land. And what, uh, Joshua had, what God, through Joshua, has the people do is take some rocks, one for each tribe, out of the river and place them in a mound. And it, they're, they're memorial stones. And the point is that this generation doesn't need them because they were there. They experienced it. But that a, a later generation or many later generations would ask about that pile of stones and then those who were there, or their offspring, could tell the story again of how God provided evidence of his greatness and his, his love for them by drying up the River Jordan so that they could cross. Okay? This is kind of like my kids knowing where their grandfather lived. They, they weren't there at the time, but the knowledge was passed on. Okay? Uh, one of my favorite stories is when Elijah has the confrontation with the, the prophets of Baal. And you remember they, they each build a big bonfire 
And Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to call upon Baal to, to light their bonfire, their sacrificial bonfire, and they can't do it. And they do all sorts of silly things to try to get it to happen, and, and Elijah even does some trash talking if, you, if you've read the story. And then Elijah prays that God would light his sacrificial bonfire on, on fire. And, and in that prayer, as recorded in 1 Kings 18.37, Elijah prays, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, why? That this people, the people of Israel, would know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. So the trusting, the faith at the end of this story comes through knowledge that comes through evidence. Okay? This is mainly not for the false prophets. This is for the people of Israel who are vacillating between do we worship the, the God that they say brought us out of Egypt or, or do we worship the gods of this land? Okay? And it's evidence that was given to them that led to their knowledge and their turning back to God. Uh, we see it also in the New Testament. So now I'm, I'm talking about Mark 2, the story where the, the paralytic is dropped through the roof by his four friends in, into a room where Jesus is, is teaching and, and maybe doing a little healing. And as this paralytic comes before Jesus, Jesus says what? First he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And knowing the thoughts of the Pharisees in the room, who, and, and what the Pharisees are thinking is, huh, anybody can say that. There's no evidence that any sins have been forgiven here, that any transaction has taken place, that this person has the authority or the power to do such a thing. There's no evidence, so I'm not going to believe that. Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, then, what, provides evidence. And he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he asked the guy to pick up his, his bed and stand up, and he does. So it's evidence that leads to knowledge, that leads to an understand, a right understanding of who, who Jesus is and, and trust in him. Okay? Now, uh, let me take you back to John 20 and the, the story of the doubting Thomas. And, and let me show you why the, the biblicist, the, the uh, evidence-free faith view, is an incorrect understanding of this verse. What Jesus was really saying to Thomas was, you had the eyewitness accounts of, of the guys that you've been hanging with for the last three years. That should have been sufficient reason for you to believe that I'd been raised from the dead. You were asking for an extraordinary amount of reason. Blessed are those who, who don't require that sort of extraordinary amount of reason. But the reason I know that my interpretation is correct and this, this evidence-free view of faith is incorrect is because of the context of this verse. That is, if I read beyond to the very next verse in John's Gospel, we find why... John bothered to write these accounts of Jesus' miracles in the first place. He says, now Jesus did, and, and these are the verses that just follow verse 29. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these signs are written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The whole project in which the gospel writer was involved was to provide evidence. And so the, this idea that faith should, is necessarily fact and evidence-free is, is not in John's understanding, and it shouldn't be in ours. Okay? So with that, let me, let me turn to a, a definition of saving faith that is the historical definition held by uh, Christians throughout the church era. And there are three components to it. And the first component to, to redemptive saving faith is notitia in the, in the Latin, which just means having right knowledge. And, and as far as the whole idea of redemption, that right knowledge needs to be of the sort that addresses who God is, who we are, what our problem is, that is our fallenness, our, our sin nature, and right knowledge about God's solution in the death and resurrection of Christ. Okay? So notitia, right knowledge about those sorts of things, are, are the first component of redemptive faith. The second component is in the Latin ascensus, which simply means agreement. So we, we have to have that right knowledge and we have to acknowledge and agree with that. Okay? Is that enough? And the answer is no. Uh, biblically, we know that that's not enough because James 2 tells us that even the demons know and, and acknowledge that right knowledge about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Okay? Personally, I can, I can tell you it's, it's part of my own testimony that I was at this place. That is, um, I can't remember a time in my childhood when I didn't understand the gospel and believe it to be true. Okay? I grew up in the church. We were there every time the doors were open and we didn't leave till we locked the door type thing. Um, even in high school, I can remember when, when a missionary would come and share with us about people being saved on the other side of the world, I was, yeah, that's great, but not for me yet because I got a life to live and I don't want somebody else calling the shots. Part of the problem was I, I lived in a community and certainly a church where I didn't know any 20 or 30-somethings that were sold out to Jesus. That is, I knew my parents and their generation followed Jesus, and I knew they wanted us little kids to do so, but I didn't know anybody that was really living life as a, as a Christ follower. And it wasn't until, you know, between my junior and senior years when I met people like that, 20-something, single 20-something guys who were, who were living an abundant life in Christ that I said, well, I don't, I don't need to wait. I don't need to live life my own way. I can... I can Accept Christ now. And so the third component, as understood throughout church history of saving faith, is, is simply, in the Latin, fiducia, which, which translates to faith, but the, but the connotation of that was a step of trust. And that that step of trust, far from being a blind leap, as it's been characterized both in our culture and many times in our churches, that step of trust is the only reasonable, the only logical, the only sensible step to take given the truth 
and an understanding and agreement with the truth about the world in which we all really live. Okay? So the bottom line is faith is not evidence-free or reason-free or blind. Christians have never understood it to be that. Now, of course, if, if you come to realize what I'm saying, if you recognize that as a worldview, Christianity has always claimed to be the uniquely accurate one, and that as a belief system as, that leads to salvation, Christianity has always claimed to be based on all the available evidence and reason, not a blind, personal, subjective leap. If you get all that, it's going to lead you to trouble with your unbelieving neighbors. There, our culture is fine with us believing the Christian story, just so long as we don't claim it's actually true. Just so long as we don't claim that it's objective and universal, applying to everybody. But if you compromise on that, you're at odds with Christian belief throughout the ages. That's not to say that other religions don't have truth to them, but that when it comes to the core of Christianity, the claims about who God is, who Jesus is, who we are and what our problem is, and how that was solved in Christ's life and death and resurrection. That's the core of Christianity, and that's where every other worldview ends up differing. And to the extent that they differ, one or both of us is wrong. And Christians believe that the Christian understanding of those things is corresponding with the reality of the world in which we all live. Okay? I see my time's up. I'll be fielding the questions during Redux, our question and answer uh, uh, service that follows in a few minutes. Uh, and I'll be glad to, to take questions about what I've shared with you or questions about uh, apologetics or, or science and how they relate to the Bible. Um, but, but just understand that Christianity claims to be the uniquely accurate understanding of the reality of the world in which we all live. And, and we dare not compromise that when we're talking to the unbelieving friends and neighbors and, and loved ones that we have. Okay, let's pray. Creator, Father, Lord, Savior, Holy Spirit, we just come before you in submission to your truth seeking with our finite minds to grasp what you have chosen to reveal to us of that truth, of the reality of the world in which we live, as revealed to you in Scripture, as revealed to you uh, through sending your Son, as revealed by you uh, in the creation itself. We would just submit ourselves to, to truth and to gaining in knowledge as you've called us to do with, with the end game of being better ambassadors for you in a lost and unbelieving world. Help us as we go through our lives this week to better articulate what it is that Christianity claims and, and to not allow those around us to define the playing field with a false representation of what 
the Bible means by Christian faith. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things.